Thanks, Dave. Good morning. Hey, can I have you grab your Bibles? We're in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We have started a series on the Beatitudes, and I'll give you a little context. Uh, as you turn in your Bibles, I want to remind you that uh, next Saturday, this church is hosting a conference called the Multiplication Conference. There's still a table just outside the sanctuary with information. I uh, would love for you to, to still register. It's, it's uh, a mere $10, um, and uh, there's going to be uh, some really encouraging speakers and uh, a catered meal from Panera. It should be great. Um, so just throw $10 in the offering box. Um, let, us, let us know that you're coming. love to have you. Uh, but just again, set the stage. Uh, I, I talked about, we did kind of had an opening sermon last week. If you missed it, you can check it out. Uh, but the, the Bible is uh, the story of God redeeming his people. Uh, but what's interesting, in, in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 is recorded quite possibly the most famous sermon ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus even says about this message that it's talking about what does it mean to have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. So what is it, and the Pharisees were just like the most religious people of the day, right? Think of your like Catholic cardinals, bishops, etc. How to have a, a, a life of righteousness before God that surpasses the most moral religious people you ever thought of. And uh, within that sermon, we're, we're going to focus on these nine Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Now, just so you know, just to set the stage, uh, Matthew 5 through 7 and the Beatitudes in particular, they were used by the early Christian church as like a founding catechism. Like this was the instructions on what it meant to walk with God, the ethics of the kingdom. Uh, the, the great uh, leader in the 4th and 5th century, St. Augustine, he called the Sermon on the Mount the perfect measure of the Christian life. And so when we're focusing on this book, it's been focused on Christians for, for centuries on how to really walk with God. So we need to pray for God's help, and then we'll dig in. So let's pray. Father, in your mercies, you have given your word to your people for them to hear, to believe, and obey. So help us now. Amen. All right, I want, to picture, I want you to picture four types of people with me, four types of people, and I want you to start asking the question, what do these folks have in common? First person, an enslaved African-American household maid. A little lighter skin than some of her kindred. Every day she is mishandled and mistreated by her mistress. And yet at night when she bows her head in prayer, she knows that she is a daughter of the living God. Second person. A 21st century homecoming king, six foot three, wavy blonde hair, slightly tanned skin. But every Sunday with his church's youth group, they go and they visit some saints at a local memory unit in Cedar Rapids. Third person. A 42-year-old man, bent over with pain, 
10 years ago had a nasty car accident, has been on disability for nine years. And yet he gets up every morning and he praises his God for the joy of his salvation. Person number four. A 55-year-old Fortune 500 company president who kneels in her office every morning asking the Lord to give her the direction she needs to employ 30,000 workers and serve 7 million customers. What do these people have in common? Now, for starters, I want you to notice that none of them have allowed their circumstances to define them. The homecoming king is not above the hurting and aged. His one sphere of influence does not give him freedom to treat those in less fortunate situations as below his attention. But so so could be said of the slave girl. She's not defined by her circumstances. She's defined by the God that she knows and loves. Similarly with the man with a disability, he can find as much joy in his salvation as an able-bodied person. Society might not give some of these people high value, or society might give some of these people high value, but they are not looking to society to have their value defined. What else did you notice? For instance, did you catch that those considered low find great exaltation before God, but those considered high take the low position in their service and prayer? Now here's the question, the big one. Which one of these people is flourishing? Now when we come to the the Beatitudes, right? that word Beatitude is a Latin term. Uh, derived from the Greek term makarios, which is where we get the word that most translate in English Bibles, blessed, right? Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now that term blessed is not easy to translate because you could also translate one who is fortunate, one who flourishes. Interesting facts. Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic, and so even though our uh, New Testament is contained in Greek, we have to go back one step further, and he was probably using the term ashray, which, means, which is the same word that begins Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked. So everything we're going to read in these Beatitudes, it's the, the life of, for one who wants to flourish, one who wants to truly be blessed. And we draw our attention to the first beatitude this week. And and, and Jesus, this is the first words of this magnificent sermon on the mount. And Jesus' first words out of the gate are this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So with time remaining, I want want to walk through three headings, try to understand this magnificent introduction to the greatest sermon, but I also think it's talking about how to also have the greatest sort of life. Three headings, the principle of being poor in the Spirit, the power of being poor in the Spirit, and then the practice of being poor in the Spirit. 
So first, the principle. Now, before I give you the principle, I want to tell you what it doesn't mean. I mean, there's a lot of ideas that I think uh, could get you into trouble. So what does being poor in the Spirit not mean? Number one, Jesus doesn't mean God only helps the socioeconomic poor. Two, Jesus doesn't mean this sort of character is an entrance requirement for heaven. Three, Jesus doesn't mean you earn extra brownie points for being poor in spirit. Let me just develop, develop those all quickly. First of all, it doesn't mean that Jesus only blesses those who are socio, socioeconomically poor. So uh, just so you know, in the middle of the 20th century, there was kind of a, a movement in some seminaries uh, called the Liberation Movement. Uh, they started preaching liberation theology. And what they began to do is they began to like read the entire Bible as being this big promise book for the poor, the weak, and the marginalized. And you know, one of their summary statements will be, God will crush those evil capitalists, but he will reward the hungry and the poor. Now, though it is especially true as you read through the Old and New Testament, we have a God who has a heart for the poor and the downtrodden. He, in fact, the Bible describes him as a defender of the poor and the downtrodden. But there is nothing in the Bible that says God automatically blesses or saves the poor. Just think about this. Every person, whether they're poor or they're rich, sin against God and are actually enemies of God in their sin. Greed is just as nasty if you make $11 an hour or if you make $100 an hour. And yet God is willing to save the millionaire who lives in a mansion as the, as the person who's on welfare, who's, spent, who's a, you know, a regular resident at the willis Dady homeless shelter. So Jesus is not saying that being poor in the Spirit is this particular blessing for the socioeconomic poor. That's not sufficient. That's not enough. Another thing that's not true is Jesus doesn't mean that this, is sort of, this sort of character is the entrance requirement for heaven. Because let me remind you, friends, there are no entrance requirements for heaven. We are not saved by our good works or our good character. We are saved by Jesus' good works and Jesus' good character. We can only be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our entrance requirement is faith, which is like utter desperation that I can't do it. We can't measure up. And so Christ has made the way. So it's not an entrance requirement for heaven. Third idea, too, it doesn't mean you get extra brownie points if you're poor in spirit, right? It's a common mistake in any religion to think that good character results in like a healthy, happy life. Turns for such thinking, we, we call it moralism. We call it legalism. And, and what, what, what such thinking begins to do is you begin to presume on God. We effectively say to God, God. If I am a great person according to your standards, then you will bless me. You have to bless me. And that's not how God works. And I think that the more you mature, the more I mature in my faith, the more I have to remember that the world and my life is not about me. <laughs> it's about God. And so God gets to take us on any journey we want. Doesn't get you more brownie points to be humble. It might actually get you a more horrific hard life in this world. 
But one of the major themes throughout the entire Bible is you were not made for this world. You were made for another world. So let me give you the actual principle. What I think Jesus is instructing for us, it's this. Here's the principle. Those who live with empty hands before God will be given everything that God has to offer. Those who live with empty hands before God will be given everything that God has to offer. So blessed are the poor in spirit, which is the idea of having empty hands before God. I got nothing. I'm, my hands are empty. And to have everything that God has offered, say, he says he's, the kingdom of God is yours. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You'll, if, as we read through the Beatitudes, you'll notice that a lot of the Beatitudes are in the future. Right? Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. It's a future tense. But this one doesn't say that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours, present tense, is the kingdom of God. Everything that God has, his kingdom, he puts in the empty hands of his people. Now, there are two types of people with empty hands. Do you know what kind of two people there are with empty hands? The ones who know it and the ones who don't. Two types of people. Now, oftentimes, it is those who are economically poor. It's those who are beat up in society that are low on the totem pole that they recognize they have empty hands. They feel it every single day. They don't have the options that other people have. They don't have the relational network. They don't have the bank account. They feel that emptiness of hand and emptiness of life. But, but on the flip side, you, you can be empty-handed but not know it. And actually, I think that's a very dangerous place to be. I think most of us sit in that category more often than the other. Because right now, you could have the prettiest girl you have ever dated in your hand. Your bank account and those monthly statements from your various investment companies might make you believe that right now you don't have empty hands. You could be driving the coolest car you have ever owned. And you might start thinking, my hands aren't that empty. But guess what? You're still empty-handed. <laughs> now remember, the term poor in spirit, which I, and I'm going to say this about every single beatitude, it's not supposed to be a bad condition. This is, the, this is actually what we're shooting for, is a recognition that we're empty-handed for God. This is a good virtue. This is a quality you're shooting for. Uh, let me give you some Bible verses just to, just to kind of build on that. Uh, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. This is what God says in Isaiah 57, verse 15. It says, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. Those who are contrite, lowly in spirit, God lives with them. That is a good place to be. If we start 
thinking that either our external situation or internal situation puts us in a good place, we're in trouble. So I mean, so externally, uh, you are not in any sense richer whether you have a million dollars in the bank or a dollar eighty-seven in your car center console. You're not. You're not any richer. But same idea, you, you, we, we can't flourish, we can't have the good life if we think pride, self-confidence, or self-assurance brings any real value to our lives. High or low self-esteem has no value in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't. The truly flourishing person shows up to God and says, you are everything, I am nothing. One of the more interesting things that's come out of Queen Elizabeth's passing, if you didn't know, she died. But a number of years ago, a, a, a chaplain was preaching before the queen and preaching about uh, the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the chaplain says that after he preached, she actually came up to him after the message. And this is what the queen said to the chaplain. She said, oh, I wish that the Lord Jesus would come in my lifetime. And the chaplain says, why? Why does your majesty feel this very earnest desire? And then he recalls that with, a quiver, with quivering lips, the Queen of England said, I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. Right? That is someone that knew it is blessed to be poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She would gladly lay down the crown of England and the commonwealth because he is greater. And she knew it. She believed in it. Because when that happens, when I, when I lay everything down, that the promise is there. It says, you have the kingdom of heaven. That is, everything that God has, he promises to his children. Anyone who walks with God, anyone who doesn't cling to any sense of riches or wealth or success in this world, if you let that all go, he drops heaven into your hands. It's yours. Everything I have is yours, he says. Consider this. Um, during the Civil War, right, the, the, the America in the North had its own currency, and then the America of the South, the, the Confederate States of America, they had their own confederacy. In fact, I think we have a picture of some of the Confederate money. As soon as the South surrendered, the money was only fit to be burned. There, those Confederate dollars were now backed on nothing. It was worth nothing. And what Jesus is saying is the truly flourishing person knows that everything this world has to offer is Confederate dollars. It has value, and it's a very short life of value. And so whether you have a much or little in this world, it doesn't matter. What ultimately matters is whether you're attached to the God and his kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, fortunate are you who come to God with empty hands because he, he doesn't turn you away. In fact, he, he pours stuff into your hands, the very kingdom of God. That's the principle. So then the next question is, well, where's the power in that? Because that sounds like a setup to get beat up on Monday. I'll be poor in spirit. I'll be tough. I'll be self-assured and self-confident. Why don't I just get beat up? 
when I just get taken advantage of? How does it work? Well, where does the power come from? The short answer is it comes from God. And I hope that's not a short answer. Like, it comes from God. This is backed up by the promise of God. Right? Because pagan religions would always believe that the gods lived and blessed those with power. It's all about how much power can you get? And if you got some, get some more. And Jesus comes and says, that is not how my kingdom works. I already read Isaiah 57. Well, how about Isaiah 66, verse 2? This is what God has to say. He says, has not my hand made all of these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with, can you see that word? What's the word? Favor. This is who I look on with favor, God's favor. Those who are humble, contrite in spirit, which actually could have been just as easily translated poor in spirit. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. You have the favor of God when you're contrite in spirit. I like football season. And I don't know if you guys knew this. Do you know who gets paid the most money in the NFL? On the average, not the superstars. You know who gets paid the most outside of your superstars? The offensive line. If you're a right or left guard in the NFL, you get paid and you get paid well. Because you want the big guys protecting the quarterback. God says, you have my favor. I mean, he's bigger than any 340-pound, six-foot-six right guard. I give him my, my, that's who I'm protecting. That's who has my favor. A number of years ago, the uh, uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther wrote this. He said, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. All right? But then he says, hence... One who is not yet nothing, out of him, God cannot make anything. It is God's nature to make something out of nothing. Hence, one who is not yet nothing, out of him, God cannot make anything. There is power in being poor in the spirit because then God comes in and makes them something. And here's the thing, if you're looking for power anywhere else, it won't last. It won't last. You know, and this, by the way, this is, this is modeled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is modeled in the life of Jesus Christ. Do you remember where in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus had to say this about himself? He, Jesus is, gives an answer to some questions. He says in Matthew, John 5, 19, very, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. God can't use anyone until they make themselves nothing. Jesus says, the Son does nothing of himself. The eternal Son of God, when he came and he incarnated himself as a man, he made himself utterly dependent on the Father. He says he can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. So Jesus did nothing by himself. He presented himself. 
contrite of spirit to God every second of his life, and then God poured down the kingdom blessings and used him. I mean, one of my absolute favorite stories, right? Jesus is living empty-handed. He's living dependent on God, and he's just walking, and a woman touches him, and the power of the kingdom like flows out of his body. God used him. This is why also the apostle, when the apostle Paul calls us to similar humility in Philippians 2, he bases it on the life of Christ. Let me remind you of Philippians 2, verse 3 and following. First he's saying to the church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Then he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature with God, that's Jesus' the eternal nature, son of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, what's the word? He made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We'll get to some application at the end of the sermon, but here's some right here. God, or excuse me, Jesus knew who he was, and he knew what he was called to do. And every day he chose to make himself nothing and to become a servant. Right? In your life, I look out here, this is a world of talented people, bright, intelligent people, uh, gifted people, strong people. You've accumulated years and years of wisdom. Tomorrow, make yourself nothing and be a servant with everything that God has given you. Jesus went as low as possible. He goes on to say, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He went as low as you can go. But remember the promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so three days later, the one who went the lowest is raised to the highest. The rest of Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Blessed was the poverty of Christ, and in so doing, God gave him the kingdom. Christ humbled himself, God exalted him. Remember, Jesus saw no titles and no riches in this world worth his time. When questioned by Pilate, Jesus kind of looked at him. You always think of like, Jesus had this like quizzical look when they were talking about kingdoms and whatnot. And Jesus was like, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. Right? Pilate is thinking about you know, Pilate, when, when Jesus is at the final trial for his life, Pilate assumes he's looking at someone else who wants to have power, wants to have authority, wants to have riches. Heck, just wants to have his own life. And Jesus is like, um, we got different value systems. This isn't, my kingdom's not here. You can take my life, I lose nothing. And he rises three days again. 
This is the true life. This is the flourishing life. This is the life promised resurrection. Where is the power? The power is from God. All right, we're two-thirds of the way done. We've looked at a principle. We've looked at the power. What about this natural question? How do I start putting this into practice? If this is the life that Jesus, this is the blessed life. This is the life for flourishing. How do I have access to this? How do I live this? Well, let me first just make some application to those of you who haven't been, maybe you're not followers of Jesus yet. Maybe you've been questioning Christianity. Like, you know, doesn't seem like the world system's working. Maybe you're considering following Jesus. Well, you want to live with him. Maybe you feel foreign to God's kingdom. Or maybe some of you have been in church for a really long time. But kind of, you're, you're actually asking your own heart. Have I ever understood what it meant to be a Christian? Let me just start by saying this. To experience the flourishing life of being blessed as one who is poor in the Spirit, you must first be born again. If you look back, if you look back here in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, he sat down, and it says, His disciples came to him. Right? Those Getting this instruction about walking in this newness of life are already disciples. They've already believed that Jesus is Messiah. They've already heard that the kingdom of God has, has entered at, in the world and they've wanted to believe in this king and enter the kingdom. Again, Martin Luther had this to say about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he is already a Christian and in a state of grace. This is, if you don't know what it means to trust Christ, if you don't know what it means to believe in him, this sort of flourishing life, this sort of character call for the kingdom, it's going to be pretty foreign to you. And you won't have the power that comes from believing in Jesus. So first you have to believe in Christ. You have to, it's actually the first step, right? The first step ends up being the same step uh, for future Christians, too, is the first step is to come empty-handed to God. I love the old hymn, Rock of Ages. This is how you become a Christian. This is how you start a life with God. You sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul. I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Uh, foul is, is not what happens when you hit the ball outside of, you know, the lines. That, that would mean foul means it's a recognition of a dirty heart. A recognition of a dirty soul. And maybe you've tried good works, you've tried good religion, and you know that that was not potent enough to cleanse. You get to a place, the only powerful place to truly be forgiven is in the blood of Jesus. And when you come to that recognition, you run to the fountain that cleanses. And you say, wash me. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And so some of you need to start there today. I want to be washed. I want to be, I want to be changed. I want to be renewed. Don't delay. This could be your last chance. Run. And Christians, if you've run, if you've, if you've drunk of this fountain and you know what it means to, to be forgiven by God, know that right, you're still here 
Because more than, like, being forgiven is amazing, but he also wants you to flourish in this new state of grace. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give it abundantly. And by the way, the abundant life is not cars and money and girls. It's, it's richer, sweeter, more powerful than anything that we can get our mind around. It's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So let's, let's, let's start trying to practice being poor in spirit. But even when I say that, can I warn you? Don't be like Uriah Heep. Now, Uriah Heep no longer has any cultural cachet, but let me tell you who Uriah Heep was. He is the bad guy in Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield. And Uriah Heep is this falsely humble, slimy person. <laughs> he pretends to be modest, and he uses all these like, oh, you know, you are so much worthier than me. I'm, you're such a good, wonderful person. Like, to be blessed in spirit is not to go to work tomorrow, right? And like walk in to work on your knees. I am humbly here to serve you, Collins Aviation. Right? There's a danger in that, that when you hear this blessed be poor in spirit, we start putting these images like, what does it look like? You know, and you, and you start like coming up with all these images. Um, one of the key things about all of these beatitudes is it comes out of a deep life with Jesus. Right? So if you have this external image of what it's going to look like, it's probably wrong. It, it flows out of this walk with God. Uh, but you know, let me talk about an indirect way to experience this life, and then we'll talk about the direct way. Right? The indirect way is always going to be prayer. And you're like, oh, prayer as a sermon application again. Yes, absolutely yes, a hundred times yes. Right? Prayer is hopefully more than daily, hopefully it's a multiple-time daily event where you come before God with empty hands and say, God, I got nothing. I, I, here's the thing. I know I do my best parenting when I'm praying. When I think I know what I'm doing with my kids, I fail. But I, I do my best parenting when I'm, I'm going to God empty hands. Like, I don't know how to love these kids. I don't know how to discipline them. I don't know how to lead them. I do my best husbanding when I'm praying because I come empty-handed. How do I love this woman? She's so different than me. You'll do your best work when you start your work day. Lord, I got I to gotta, I gotta have a creative mind. I got to be able to work with other people. I got to be able to put, get, make some money to support my, like, empty-handed, like, God, help me. How do I do this? It, the more you pray, the more that you'll want to pray because it just reminds you of how impoverished we are spiritually. But the promise attached to this is you come with empty hands before God in prayer. He just pours down kingdom. I'll give you kingdom resources. Some of you guys know that promise in James 1. It says, if any one of you acts, lacks wisdom, go ask God for wisdom. And the Bible says, he gives generously and graciously to all without finding fault. Right? God just pours, you want, if you ask for wisdom from God, he's like, I, I love answering that prayer. You need help to serve someone? I'll help answer that prayer. We were praying this morning in the prayer room. Come at 840. It's great. It's a, a saint in the room just praying like, I get angry and I want to punch people sometimes. Right? That's a great prayer because we all feel it. We just don't say it out loud. But Lord, help me to have a kind heart and a, a tender spirit to be forbearing with a brother, a sister, a workmate. Come with empty hands in prayer. Pray to the Heavenly Father, who is the sovereign creator. Pray to him and say, God, help me, Father. 
Go to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the second member of the Trinity. It says that he is in heaven interceding on your behalf and you can come to the throne room of grace and ask help anytime you're in need. Go to the Father, go to the Son, go to the Spirit. Go to the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Ask the Spirit to fill you with wisdom and strength. Pray that God the Spirit would bear in you godly fruit. I know of no greater practice to begin to develop what it means to be poor in spirit than to pray. After you pray, and while you pray, the one external thing, I'll go back to what I said before, take on service. Take on service. I mentioned to this guy a couple years ago in a sermon, uh, there was a guy at a church I served in Indianola. His name was Steve Stevenson. I don't think his parents liked him. Steve Stevenson. But Steve was a bright guy. He was on the corporate track at Principal Financial Group. As far as I know, he's still there or about to retire. Big guy, smart, intelligent. And, but every time where I looked, there was Steve like setting up chairs, and there was Steve setting up tables, and there was Steve listening to one of those people that it's hard to listen to. And Steve, for a number of years, even though he had plenty of money, he drove the rideshare van to, from Indianola, Iowa to 801 Grand Principal. And I remember asking Steve, I, you are not like me. <laughs> What, why do you do what you do? And he said, Matt, every time I walk into a room, I just ask the question, where can I serve? See a need, meet a need. And so I give you Steve's counsel, because this, this is an area of growth for me. But Jesus, fully, fully God, comes to earth. He takes on the nature of a servant. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To close, I just want you to consider John the Baptist. This is a man who was born with a clear sense of purpose. He knew who he was, and he knew what he was supposed to do. Now, if you go back and you reread those early verses in the Gospels, John the Baptist's early ministry career was stunningly successful. Everyone was coming out of Judea, Jerusalem. He had a massive crowd. He was doing so much good for God that people asked him this question, are you the Messiah? I've preached a few good sermons in my day. No one has got, when I've got done, have said, Matt. You got to imagine the kind of spiritual potency and brilliance of this man that they ask him, are you the Messiah? And you know what his response was? No. I am not worthy to put the sandals on or the sandals off of the man who's coming, who's the Messiah. And then what happens is this Messiah shows up and John the Baptist has the privilege of baptizing him. And then this Jesus, he, he wanders off and he starts having his own ministry. And you know what happens? The crowds start leaving John. Right, the church of John the Baptist was shrink, shrinking, getting small. First church of John. And they're going over to first church of Jesus. And you know what his disciples said? Aren't you disappointed? Don't you miss that moment? You remember the crowds? And John the Baptist said, you know what? I feel like the best man at my best friend's wedding. 
I am so glad that my Messiah is getting all the glory. And I'll do whatever it takes. And then he gave a mantra that I would love for us to be our mantra. If we want to be blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He pointed to Jesus and he said, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. Father in heaven, you are merciful and kind to the contrite in spirit. You send all all the riches and the power of your kingdom into the hands of those who are holding nothing. We know that this was all purchased by Jesus on the cross. It's been guaranteed by his resurrection from the dead. It is now offered through his intercession from heaven. And so all praise be to Jesus. May his name increase. May ours gladly decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.